Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jew, Jews. But there were some of the men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. We're making our way through the book of Acts, and as we do so, we're asking the question, essentially, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God? We've looked in the past at some of the prophets who leveled a charge against Israel, God's people, for not being faithful. We come to Acts and see the, the New Testament church being forged in new ways, new priorities, uh, new boundaries being set. And these cause us to reflect upon, okay, well, what does this mean for us? How does this book that Luke thought was so important to write to Theophilus inform us in being the people of God today? Now, in going through the book of Acts, it's very hard to overestimate uh, the notion of transition that is occurring at this time. Right? There is a massive overhaul of everything that God's people have known up to this point. God's people have been uh, in relationship with God through a law that God had given. Uh, we're oriented through a system of uh, blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience, and now all of that is changing decisively as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And suddenly, uh, what had been a very you know, inward-focused community is now being challenged by the Spirit of God to be outward-focused. These are radical, radical ch- We really have no equivalent. There's no analogy that I can give you that would enable you to, uh, to feel the sense of this it would be something to the effect of God showing up in some powerful and remarkable way today and saying, you know that cross stuff? We're not going to worry about that anymore. We're going to move in a new direction. And you'd think, okay, that's a lot to process. Why, would we, why are we doing that? 
Why are we changing? What's wrong with what we've been doing up to this point? Why are we moving in a new direction? And all of these questions, these wrestlings, uh, are, are absolutely saturating what's happening in the book of Acts and certainly our passage today. And it raises the question for us to reflect upon what it means to be part of a tribe, what it means to be part of a social institution, and how we see ourselves as part of the church or part of other social institutions that surround us. Right? We as social animals are very prone to be tribal people. We seek out different organizations or different groups of people that are like us, that share our values or our desires or our goals, and we link to them. We enter into social contracts with them. We believe that they will protect our interests. We seek to protect their interests, and we think that we have solidarity in the midst of that grouping. This is happening all the time around us. In fact, a a strong example of... uh, one of the ways in which tribes occur and tribes then can have a mind of their own occurs in the cycling world. I was reading this week about Lance Armstrong, who just settled a week or two ago with the U.S. government for fraud. Right? He rode for years on the U.S. Postal Service team. Of course, it comes out later that the entire time he was riding and his team was riding, they were uh, doping uh, to at extreme levels, which is why he had seven Tour de France victories, even though he was denying it the entire time. But as one journalist was reviewing Lance Armstrong's story, he said, what makes Armstrong unique is not his doping, uh, because even the critics uh, agree that during this time, everyone in professional cycling was doping. It's often called the largest uh, drug abuse situation in professional sports in the history of professional sports. You couldn't compete at a world-class level unless you were doping. But what made Armstrong unique was the degree to which he sought to control the narrative and protect the tribe that he had established. Once he started doping, he ascended to kind of the throne of cycling, established a team. But then when anyone questioned or deviated from the story, anyone threatened the tribe, he would threaten them. So when journalists started to poke and prod, he would call the newspaper and say, listen, this journalist is no good, fire him or you're never going to get an interview from me. He would call other teams and try to get, or um, if some other cyclist threatened him, like Greg LeMond, and if you're old enough to remember, Greg LeMond was the American hero of uh, the Tour de France in the late 1980s, and he was always critical of Lance Armstrong, thinking no one could achieve what Armstrong did without doping. Well, Armstrong got angry, called Trek, said, if you don't drop uh, Greg LeMond's bicycle line and end his sponsorship, then I'm never going to have anything to do with you. And so they dropped Greg LeMond. Journalists, other athletes, and of course, people on his team. And if you didn't dope, you couldn't be on the team because you threatened the team. You might talk. You weren't on board. You weren't a, a team player. Through all these decisions, Lance Armstrong tightly tried to uh, organize, to control, to navigate, to preserve a story which preserved his tribe, which at the end of the day, the irony of it is that this tribe to which he belonged and always desired to belong, the most elite team in professional cycling, was a fabrication. It was illusion. It was built on artificial achievements that ultimately would be all stripped from him. He's lost every title he won. He's lost a significant portion of his resources, right? And is has lost the reputation of his, his name. He's lost everything, but at the time would do anything to preserve the sense of 
social solidarity and what his social tribe was granting him at the time. Now, this is intended to make us think about tribes, and even though none of us are professional cyclists, what tribe do you belong to? Right? What group of people do you tend to associate with? Where do you uh, gravitate toward in terms of identifying and having certain conversations? And then what would you do to maintain your place in that tribe? How important is it to you? Perhaps what are you doing even now that you're not necessarily comfortable with to cement your place in that tribe? See, what happens in our passage is rather momentous. In verse 26, the early church gets a new name. And with a new name really comes a new identity. If you look in verse 26 for the first time recorded in the New Testament, which will only occur a few times, the early church will be called, referred to by outsiders as Christians. Well, why did they receive this name? What is the significance of this name? Why, what was happening that required the outside world to say, we're now going to label you something, and this is what we're going to label you? This is what we're trying to understand uh, this morning as we proceed. So what is in a name? Well, as we see in verse 26, the name Christian is applied, and oddly, it's It's a name that will only occur two or three times in all of the New Testament. And it's never a name that the church actually appropriates for itself. It's a name that outsiders place on the church to mark them out. It means simply followers of Christ. And some theologians think it may have been a derogatory term to begin with because the church doesn't use it for itself. In some ways, they might have been mocking them as, oh, followers of the Messiah, as if he really is the Messiah. But the name undoubtedly sticks, given that we're still using it today. It's had some staying power. And Christian, in and of itself, is a Greek-Latin hybrid. It borrows from both languages and uniquely is a name suited to be received both in the East and the West as the church moves forward and engages other cultures and tells the story of Jesus. Well, again, why this name applied at this time? Yes, it's going to be more acceptable in the broader world, but what necessitates it? Well, we see the unfolding of a broader mission. In verse 19, Luke is telling us that as a result of the persecution that befell Stephen, who was stoned in Jerusalem, additional persecution went out against the church and scattered Young Jewish believers, right? By Jewish believer, I mean a Jew who has come to believe in Jesus as Messiah. It scattered them all over the Mediterranean world, right? As far as uh, Phoenicia, and our story is taking place in Antioch. And there they are preaching the story of Jesus. But notice what Luke tells us. Who are they preaching to up to this point? Only to Jews, right? They are not sharing the story of Jesus with anyone who is not found in a synagogue. Until you look at verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, right? And man, it would be interesting to meet these guys, decide to preach Jesus to the Hellenists, to non-Jews, to the Gentiles. So maybe these, these guys have heard about Peter's encounter with Cornelius. We don't know. But presumably, they think to themselves, well, maybe this is the start of something new, that God is actually going to do something much bigger than simply Israel and Jewishness, and we're going to step out and tell this story about Jesus to people who have no 
no, no bandwidth or no, um, no category in which to put them. I wonder how those first conversations went and what it sounded like and how they decided to say, hey, pardon me, can I tell you about this man Jesus who fulfills these Old Testament scriptures that you don't know anything about, but it's God who became man, and so let's, let's talk. This is very important. And so that conversation goes forth, and God's spirit is in it. In verse 21, we read, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so while at the end of chapter 10 we see apostolic approval, in other words, Peter comes back, says this is what happened with Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. The apostles say this is amazing. We're not sure quite what to make of it, but we celebrate. We rejoice that God is extending this message. Here, though, is the first actual practice, right? The apostolic community, the apostles, are surprised by what God has done in Cornelius. They didn't see it coming. But here we now see disciples who are saying, well, maybe this is part of a story that we're supposed to participate in. And they step out in boldness, courageously in faith, and say, we're going to share this story with the Gentiles and see where it goes and what happens. And in this sense, we begin to see the Great Commission as articulated in Acts 1-8 fulfilled. Luke says that the gospel is going to go to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now, for Luke, this isn't finished. Luke will actually go out of his way to some degree at the end of the book of Acts to tell us that the Great Commission is essentially fulfilled when Paul reaches Rome, which is the ends of the earth, so to speak, in general parlance in the ancient world, even though everyone knew there were people living beyond Rome. So we're not there yet, but this is that first step into the edges of the world beyond Judea and Samaria, that this gospel is being carried forth And that commission that Jesus gave before he ascended is being fulfilled. Now I'd like to return to some of these huge questions. We see the gospel going out to Gentiles. We see the disciples being willing to participate in what has been revealed in Cornelius. But this is not the way God has functioned for millennia. Judaism has existed for over a thousand years without an outward movement without an outward face. Why change? Why change at this point in time in history? Well, in one sense, God's timing is inscrutable, but in a couple of places. One is, uh, and the one I'm going to look at is Galatians 4, if you want to turn there. The other is Ephesians 1. But in two places, uh, Paul will speak of this as of the arrival of Christ and the gospel going forward as the fullness of time, which is a great phrase. The notion that God has waited for an appropriate time in which his, his redemptive history can move forward in a decisive new chapter, right? it's at this time that he deems it to be full, to be appropriate for this to occur. And this is how Paul puts it in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into, your, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right, remarkably, What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the fullness of time has come. 
And in the framework that he establishes in Galatians, what he's saying is in the old, the old time, the Old Testament time, essentially we were more like slaves. We related to God through a law that could not be kept, but it was intent to tutor us to get to a certain place where we could actually be made sons, that we could be adopted through the blood of Christ. Now, the ramifications of this, as Paul will expound, are radical, but note two. Number one, who makes up the tribe of God's people now? Formerly, it was ethnically defined. Now it has no boundary. And two, ethically, it was defined by law. No longer will it be defined by law. Now it's going to be defined by something like living a life that looks like the life of Jesus. Now ethic is defined by picking up a cross and following after him. Right? Again, earth-shaking shifts in the story of God's redemption, that now there is no boundary ethnically, and the ethic changes from law, essentially, to cross. And so the New Testament community is suddenly challenged to look outward, to move with the story of Jesus toward people who have never heard of such a thing, who have never even heard of the law, and to tell that story and invite them to bend the knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. And they do so, and we wouldn't be sitting here today if they didn't. They were willing to look outward. And again, I can't really fathom how difficult it must have been for them to make that decision and simply on the conversion of Cornelius to say, God seems to be doing something new. We're going to participate. Because looking out is very difficult. Belonging to a tribe gives us great security, especially when those boundaries are set and when we know how we achieve our righteousness and our reward within those boundaries. Think about the nature of a tribe to which you might belong. Um, You know, if you think that's too abstract, think of, gosh, it could be anything. Think of an HOA, right? A homeowners association, right? I engage in that kind of tribe, right? I'm committed to those who I believe will be committed to me. I'm promising that I'm not going to put 100 pink flamingos in my yard permanently, but you're also promising me that you're not going to paint your house purple, right? We've entered a contract to preserve a certain social order. This is part of being in a tribe. Not only that, but I know the boundaries of my community, right? So in that sense, it's secure. My neighborhood ends here and here, and if you live beyond these boundaries, you're outside of my neighborhood and are of lesser concern to me, right? My priority is to protect the boundaries of my community. And when I am in a community or a tribe or my HIOA, I know the power structure. It's set. There are officers and there are influencers. And because it's set, it's a bounded set, I can learn who the influencers are. I can learn who the officers are. And if I want to move up in that ladder of power, I know how to do it. I know how to achieve more. And therefore, I can, uh, as a result, exercise greater influence on the decisions of the neighborhood. Now, you could, you could replace HOA with a club sport or with, uh, with work or with a, um, you know, some kind of social organization or any number of the fundraising groups or charitable organizations within culture. Right? All of these operate in similar fashions. They're bounded sets that give us significance and identity. Now, the problem with what God does in Jesus Christ is he turns all of that on its head. 
including his own tribe, he turns it on his head and says, this is not the way that it's going to work for my people any longer. And the reason it can't, it, it, that God can do that is because of what's accomplished in Christ. Right Now I can say, I know, formerly in a tribe, I would have said, I'm only committed to those who are in my tribe. Now I'm committed to my enemy. Why? Because God was committed to me as his enemy and redeemed me through Christ. Formerly, I would have said, I, uh, I know the boundaries of my community. I'm not going to let in somebody I don't like. In fact, I've set up all kinds of boundaries to prevent people I don't like from entering. Now, there are no boundaries. Anyone can be let into God's community by his grace and his invitation. And it may be even the person that you really don't like. That's a lot more threatening than setting up a tribe that you think you have control over entrance. And then thirdly, the power structure of a community, right? Formal or a tribe that you know and you can exercise influence within. Now the power structure is utterly subversive because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And to follow after Jesus and to exercise leadership in his community is to disrobe and to wash the feet of those you serve. You couldn't turn the tribe more upside down. Everything changes. And this is what the early church is beginning to realize here as the men from Cyprus and Cyrene are willing to step out and to speak to Gentiles and tell them the story of Jesus. And it's the problem for us because even though we don't have the same kind of transition, we're on the Gentile side from birth, we still have that struggle to live in a tribal fashion, to live our faith in a tribal fashion because it is much easier and more predictable and we think that it, it requires less and grants more. Now, if you, don't, if you don't necessarily buy that, just think with me for a minute how much we have in common with the two major tribes of Judaism as Jesus comes on the scene. Right? Who are the two major groups? On the one hand, you have the Sadducees. Now, what is true of the Sadducees? Just keep a couple things in mind. Number one, they only believed in the Torah. The rest of the Old Testament, they did not recognize. They did not believe in a resurrection, therefore. And so what you do, if you're a Sadducee at the end of the day, God's kind of set things in motion. He's given us a law to obey. But all blessing and all disobedience happens in this life. So what, what's my job at the end of the day? Well, I'm going to try to be pretty righteous. And if I'm righteous, I expect to be blessed. That's the way things work. And the best blessings I'm going to have are in this life. From my point of view, we can debate it later if you want, I just described most of Rockwell Christianity to you. You know, God has set things in motion, and, you know, there's a resurrection, but it's so abstract and distant, I don't really know what that's about. And so really, I want most of my blessings in this life. And so I'm going to expect that God protects me and grants me a certain degree of blessing as long as I'm not engaged in gross sin. And as long as I'm not engaged in gross sin, I can work really hard to spend all of my money on myself and my family and to achieve what I want to achieve. Right? It's a, it's, we can call that Sadducean Christianity. Now on the other side is Pharisaical Christianity. Right? The other major tribe at the time that Jesus shows up, the Pharisees were different. The Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament that you treat as the Old Testament. They also believed in resurrection. And so they didn't know that necessarily they, they uh, were in the place 
you know, they looked at Israel's history and said, people have really suffered even though they're righteous. So maybe blessing and reward doesn't come in this life. Ah, maybe it comes in the life to come. Well, how do I make sure that I'm going to get that blessing and that reward? Well, I'm going to be not only obedient, I'm going to redefine obedience. I'm going to be so theologically savvy. I'm going to know the scriptures backward and forward. I'm going to know every rule, and I'm going to make rules to prevent me from breaking the rules. I just described to you most of fundamentalism in a good part of the reform world. That I live in such a way, I'm theologically savvy. I'm not going to worry too much about my heart because ultimately as long as I'm taking care of this outward obedience, I ensure that my reward and blessing is coming. And this is my tribe that I gravitate to. I love to have these conversations and live in this world. The widow and the orphan, not so much. Bearing one another's burdens, I'm really too busy reading. Why? Because I think Jesus will have favor on me because I have my knowledge. Two tribes in which we in our practice of Christianity can continue to fall into because we aren't willing to embrace the radical nature of Christ and actually follow after him, right? Jesus says, come, follow after me. And we say, a little bit. But I'd really rather ensure one way or another in in my approaches to these tribes that I ensure a certain degree of, of righteousness and reward in this sense. And so I have my boundaries. I have my power structure. And I don't really have to move toward an outsider. God, if you're going to do something in the outsider, I'll leave that up to you. After all, people can only come to you if you call them. And we back up and we stop to participate in the very mission of God. Now, if you think this is our issue, you know, don't rem- keep in mind, um, we're talking about Antioch here in our passage. And when you enter into Galatians, Paul recounts the occasion where he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch and they're converting. And then Peter comes, and what does Peter do? He says, yeah, we Jewish believers are pulling out. We're not going to eat with you Gentile believers. Right? What does Peter do? He says, you know, I like the old tribe better. It was a lot more secure, and I knew my place. Right? And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. And what most you won't hear a lot of times is Paul almost certainly lost that argument. Because why wouldn't he record Peter's acquiescence if he was right, or if he was seen as being right. Of course, Paul was right, right? But at the time, it doesn't seem like Peter recognizes that Paul is actually right. He prefers to live, right, as a Pharisee in his practice of Christianity, even as an apostle. And so we had better recognize that it's a challenge to us if it was a challenge for Peter. And to be called this morning that looking outside, outward from our own community is essential to be faithful, to move toward faithfulness in Jesus. And this is even a little bit what I was trying to get at the children's lesson. Our actions inform our thoughts as our thoughts inform our actions. And if we aren't willing, we can say in our head, of course I'm open to the outsider. Well, how have you engaged the outsider? If you haven't engaged the outsider, then stop telling me that you're open to the outsider because you're not actually moving in that direction. What would it mean for you today, this week, to actually move in that direction? 
to look outward and to be as bold as the men of Cyprus and Cyrene and say God has done a radical work in extending his gospel to all people. I am called to participate this in this right, as an ambassador of reconciliation, as Paul will call us to. If I'm not engaging the outsider, I'm no ambassador of anything except what I want at the end of the day. So you have to rub shoulders with the outside world. Many of you do this in work. Some of you I know pray with those you work with. Some of you seek to offer the story of Jesus to those that you work with. Others of you who exist, whether you're at home or in the church and you don't rub shoulders as often, you have to create opportunities where you would actually be with outsiders. I have to do that intentionally because I sit with Zach all week. And I'm still praying for his conversion, but in, in faith, perhaps it will come at some point. Right? So I've told you these stories, right? I, uh, I'd go uh, do, I used to like sports. My body doesn't like it anymore, but I would do CrossFit, or I would go to the natatorium and join the swim club, or I actually join the HOA and rub shoulders with the people in my community. And you know what? A lot of times the conversations went nowhere. And you want to kill a conversation, tell somebody you're a pastor. It's just, unless they have something to confess. And then suddenly they want to talk to you and get it off their, their chest. But it, more often than not, right, it's like, oh, okay, I'll see you later. Because you're not fun and I'm going to feel awkward about whatever I want to do and say being around you. But there are those times when rubbing shoulders, right, is that opportunity for the gospel to be extended. And not that long ago, someone... There's a, a, a really a kind of a funny uh, man in our neighborhood. He's, he's um, very gruff, and he's always critical of whatever. The, it doesn't matter what the neighborhood association wants to do. He doesn't like it. And he's um, a mason by trade, and, and we've chatted off and on over, over the years and got to know him. But recently he was by, and he was just having a hard time. His mother is, is dying of cancer, and his wife was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And you could tell he was, just, he was shaken. All of his toughness, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront the world with my armor and with one pulled, arm pulled back, ready to swing. It was just done because it didn't work, right? You can't punch cancer. And so we, we chatted, and we chatted in a new way. And we chatted about life and about death and about God. And I just asked, can I, can I pray for your wife and for your mom? And he says, yeah, that'd be okay. I never would have said that leading up to that point. In fact, he had been quite critical of the church and had no need for all those phonies. But suddenly, right, when confronted with death, he said, yeah, prayer's not necessarily such a bad idea. And so you're always welcome to join us at church. I, said, I, I know. Right? And moved on. Right, he did, you know, it wasn't the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles. But I rubbed shoulders with an outsider. I said, hey, I, I think Jesus is pretty important, and I think he could actually make a pretty significant difference in your life. And for, for, you know, for the first time in a long time, if ever, this man said, yeah, I think I have to consider uh, that notion or the nature of that. Now, notice, though, the joy of participating in that. Right? And it's not just a simply a, um, gosh, it's so easy to walk away from church or to walk away from Scripture and say, here's another thing I have to be obedient in. Got to go make sure that I share with somebody this week. It's not that. Notice what happens for me when I participate in the mission of God. 
all of the things that I'm committed to in my tribal mentality, which is utterly human, and my bounded sets, and I want to protect myself from people who might be a threat. I don't want to love them or move toward them. The, you know, the tighter my world is and the more I understand my power structure, the better off I am. But here I am. This guy's been kind of an enemy of the neighborhood. I'm going to love him. It might result in my ridicule. But in making that decision to participate in that conversation, what has occurred? All of those things as priorities have been removed and a piece of my old self has died. And to the degree that the old man is put to death and the new man emerges is joy and life and freedom. And so it's not simply a call to participate in a mission because we have to accomplish something for God or because we have to be obedient or we're going to be punished. But God says, come and participate in my mission so that you'll actually know freedom in life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have run to us, your enemies, to redeem us. And we thank you that in the most surprising of fashions, in a way that surprises the apostles uh, and the disciples, you send them to the Gentiles that they would receive the message of Jesus. It is so easy for us now to live in a Jewish state of mind, to live as a closed tribe, to only be worried about that which happens within. Would you forgive us for our selfishness and help us to be free to look outward, to face outward, and to move towards those who are outsiders in a way that invites them to taste your grace and frees us from the, uh, the tribes of this earth. The communities in which we participate will never grant the life that they promise. Instead, they will only, uh, they will only consume us and leave us as less. So would you call us out of our foolishness and out of our blindness this morning? Would you nourish us at your table? And would you send us out as truly ambassadors of reconciliation? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.